welcome to the MindChimp Podcast. Hey Roger, welcome to the MindChimp Podcast. How are we doing? Doing fine. Good, 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 good. Well, yeah, I mean, thanks for coming on to the show. I know we, we it was pretty short notice, so I really appreciate you coming on. So usually with these podcasts, the first thing I tend to do is um, I tend to ask what your tagline was. Can you remember what you what you said to me? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> what did I say? Everything you know about education is yes, wrong. Yes, exactly. So everything you think about education and learning is wrong. So I guess before we get into that, because I really do want to jump into that, definitely. First thing I want to do is when you was in school, Roger, and you know maybe it was seven years old, six years old, and the teacher would say to you, Roger, what do you want to be when you grow up? What was your answer? Oh, I have no idea. Okay. I mean, actually, it's a terrible question to ask a child. Children only know a few occupations. They've done surveys in both London and New York are kind of the same. Number one on the list for everybody is zookeeper. I mean, you know, these kids have no idea what jobs are. They want to be an astronaut. And I don't think they should ask kids that, that question. Okay. Okay. So I like that. I like that. So I guess, you know, you know, we have a mutual friend with Nick Shackleton Jones, and um, but for the people who 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 don't know who you are, Roger, I guess maybe if you could give us a bit of a, a whistle stop tour of, of your career and kind of where you've been and where you've and how you've got where you are right now would be great. Well, I think when I, when you ask me a question like that, I think about all the stupid things I did in my life. Uh, <laughs> one of the first stupid things I did was I was a professor when I was 22 years old uh, at Stanford which was looking back at it ridiculous because I had no business having, I had students older than me. I had no business being a professor at 22, but I was. And um, I was at Stanford when Silicon Valley was starting, but not knowing enough about the world, didn't think that mattered and (laughs) moved and went to Yale. Uh, Going to Yale was a good decision because at Yale, I had a lot more freedom. There were a million computer scientists in, in Stanford, but not so many really at Yale. And I had more freedom to create what I wanted to create. And I stayed there for a long time. And eventually I moved to Northwestern. And then somewhere after being a professor for 35 years, which made me in my 50s, uh, I decided that this is enough of this. And first of all, I decided the university system is completely corrupt and I couldn't be part of it anymore. And second off, I was bored to death with the endless garbage. Uh, To quote Henry Kissinger, the reason that academic politics is so vicious is there's so little at stake. That's about right. And um, and I my passion has been since my children went to school, uh, fixing the schools uh, because my subject was learning how people learn. And I was trying to get computers to learn. And while I was learning about how learning worked, I realized that what was going on in my kids' lives in the school had nothing to do with learning at all. And I started getting angry about it and finding out more and talking to people. And eventually have come to the opinion that it's all a giant government plot that weirdly enough, every government totally agrees on. There is no country whose school system is different than any other countries. And it's interesting because governments agree on nothing except this. And so you have an international school system, which is teaching ridiculous stuff, for the most part, stuff invented by the Romans um, and uh, meant not to teach people to work, but to teach people to be orators in the forum. The so-called liberal arts are all about learning how to be an orator in the forum because you won't have to work for a living, so you can just learn how to make a speech about philosophical subjects. And I'm I'm appalled by it. So I went into business and I um, tried to overthrow the school system, but it turns out that doesn't work. Uh, So (laughs) instead, I'm trying to change corporate learning, which corporations will listen to me. And I, I can't tell you who my clients are, but I have some really, really important companies or clients who are listening to me and changing how they do learning. And so that's how I make a living. But my passion is to change the schools about which I have had no effect whatsoever. Okay, okay, so no, it's a, it's a great, so I guess for me, you know, is it, and I, I probably will murder this term, so apologies in advance. So is it Socra- Socratic arts? So maybe, yeah, could tell us a little bit more about that if you could. Well, Socratic Arts is a, is a consulting company. We have maybe about 50 people. And uh, what we do is temporary, assignments from big companies who want to teach their people how to do this or teach their people how to do that and have realized that the normal methods aren't working. And so um, typically our clients are consulting companies, but one of my biggest clients at the moment is the Pentagon, uh, which is very upset by the fact that there aren't enough cybersecurity defenders or attackers who work for the country and they don't know how to make more. So I've built a cybersecurity course. Um, first of all, I should say when I say the word course, I don't mean what anyone else means by it. First of my courses are always online. 
The reason for that is I want them to be able to be delivered anywhere, anytime. And second off, my courses are all learned by doing. There is nobody yabbering at you. Right now, I really think I've talked too much. The first job, I, first class I ever taught at Stanford, I was teaching semantics. And after an hour of listening to myself talk about semantics, I thought, and why does anyone in the room need to hear any of this? They don't, they're just, someone made them show up. They can't possibly care. I always had a student's perspective because I never cared. And so um, these days I worry a lot about what kinds of kids there are and how we could address each kid as an individual and stop treating them as a member of a gigantic pack, um, which is in effect what school is. School is, um, uh, it's free daycare from the government. And it, I will take your, put your kid in a room and, and, and really annoy him to death all day, but he'll be safe. We're not too good on the safety these days in the United States, but in any case, uh, he'll be safe and he may hate it, but it won't matter because he'll have to endure it like everybody else does. And so this is what happens. And when you have a child who's a happy, carefree, loves to learn kind of kid who's constantly teaching himself new things and playing with new things or whatever, when kids playing with blocks, you don't say, no, you shouldn't be playing with blocks. You should be playing with dolls. Your kid is doing something, um, you don't say, well, now you better hear an hour lecture. <laughs> we wouldn't even think of treating kids this way. But what we do, what we do is in school is you know, everybody now has to learn their learn the quadratic equation. Because why, I ask. No one ever asked that question. Whenever I give a speech anywhere, I always one of the first things I ask the audience is, tell me the quadratic formula, who knows it? So let's assume there's a thousand people in the room. Usually four or five people raise their hands and they know it. I always call on one of them and tell it to me. And almost always they tell me the Pythagorean theorem, which another thing they memorize is of no use. So what we walk around in school is make people memorize nonsense and then pat ourselves on the back for teaching kids mathematics when no one remembers why we need to teach kids mathematics. By the way, I don't mean arithmetic, but past arithmetic, we're constantly teaching them nonsense that they don't need. And we get very upset right now. There's an international competition, a competition promoted by OECD called the PISA competition, which has every country taking the same tests and then comparing them. I was once called to Bogota, Colombia, because they had come in 65th internationally and they were hysterical about it. And I said, it's not the World Cup. Who cares? And, and oh, this is very important. I said, good, I'll, I'm going to ask you, the audience, five questions from the PISA test. No one in the audience knew a single answer to anything. Yes, we memorized the quadratic formula, and we forget it the next day, an hour later. We don't need it. I'm annoyed by this. No, no, this is this is great. And I, I was reading, um, a, a, I think it was a blog post, um, what I read recently about kind of children. You mentioned about children with ADHD and, and, and dyslexia and stuff like that. So... Yes, I, I so I have dyslexia and dyspraxia, um, but I found it really interesting. Kind of you, you blog on that, and I guess for me, you know, you, you summed it up really well. Actually, kind of rather than having this sheep dip approach of every every child's the same, actually every child's different, and we we need and want and and we do things differently. And yet, the first thing we do in the school is say, "Hey, you're, you're all the same," kind of thing. And you, how how you're gonna go through this experience all the same way, and it's just doesn't work you know i i exactly we teach teach everybody the same but we also continually tell them things that aren't worth knowing so for example who won the war of 1812 i'm asking a a, a brit so let's see what your answer is oh god i'm not see this is a problem yeah so i couldn't even i couldn't even tell you what i had for dinner yesterday roger so it's wasted the answer to who won the war of 1812 is it just doesn't matter in british history so they don't teach it in the united states they do teach it and they don't teach who won it because it's not clear that, we, that, that England didn't win it. Uh, and we're not really proud of it. So we just teach nonsense about it. But in Canada, where I live in the summertime, there's not a single person. You can stop people on the street and say, who won the War of 1812? They're tell you, we did. And this was news to me that Canada won it in part because Canada wasn't a country in 1812. But that doesn't matter. They beat this into every single child that they won the War of 1812. At the very best, best you can say, most likely is, the British won, but the British owned Canada, and some of the soldiers were probably stationed in Canada, and maybe some were actually born in Canada. Who cares? Why are we teaching this nonsense to kids? It's a good point. It's a good point. And I guess, actually, just, just kind of building upon upon what you're saying, you you mentioned earlier kind of like, you know, no school system is really different. I, I guess for me, and this might be down to my gaps in my knowledge, but, you know, when it comes down to kind of education and learning, you know, if you look at, say, someone like... And, 
it's always the same countries as I know. But if you look at someone, say, like Finland, and their early education is kind of designed around this concept of learning through play. Um, and, you know, I think the teachers have, have quite a lot of um, autonomy to kind of, you know, with the class sizes up and down and stuff like that. Well, they don't have as much autonomy as you think, because at the end, there's always the same stupid tests, including the PISA test, which they take in Finland, too. And they judge how well they're doing on that test. The problem is that the measures are so stupid that it doesn't matter how, how good you can make the school experience, which admittedly the Finnish are doing a better job than others. But um, when I was in Bogota, they had invited a bunch of Finnish people there to tell them how, what they were doing. And I learned the secret of the Finnish school system. The secret of the Finnish school system is everybody is the same person as they're all Finns. All right? So whereas in this country, everybody's from some different background, has some different way of trying to understand the world and interacting with people of Finns behave the same. So they don't have any real problem with handling the kids because they all follow the Finnish rules of behavior, which makes life much easier for everybody. But in addition, they're not trying to ram a lot of nonsense down their throats, in part because Finland isn't the kind of country which is one to tell you about its great military victories. But on average, when you in any country you're in, now I'll give you an example. I spent a lot of time in Spain, and I say that everything you're teaching is nonsense, and they don't like it to hear it. And, and they say, well, "What history? We have to teach history." I said, "Well, I'm a, just a stupid American." So let me tell you two things I know about Spanish history: one, the Spanish Inquisition, and two, the rape of South America. Which of those do you teach in your history course? Oh well, we don't teach that. Yeah, wonder why not. <laughs> I mean, you go to Uruguay and you discover Uruguay is a 100% white country. You want to know why? They literally murdered every single Indian they met. There's a statue to three Indians in Uruguay, and, and those three Indians were shipped off to France and they died there. And they have a statue to the only Indians that they didn't murder themselves. They left that part out when they taught Spanish history, didn't they? So, And you didn't learn that either. But the problem is that the world is a complicated, annoying place. We never try to teach anything about other than we're wonderful. So history is baloney. You know, if make, you know, we're making it up. Uh, mathematics is completely useless after um, basic arithmetic. Uh, we need to know English literature for no reason I can possibly figure out. But yet, I was um, in the United States Naval Academy recently because I have a cybersecurity course, and God knows they need it there. And the, I met with the dean, and the dean said, but we're a liberal arts institution. I said, you're a what? He says, we teach the liberal arts because the liberal arts teaches you to think. This is one of the pieces of nonsense about education. Goes on. Why would the liberal arts teach you to think better than fixing a car would teach you to think? Or better than anything else teach you to think? Oh, liberal arts teach you to think. I said, so um, I thought you were trying to train naval officers. I guess I'm mistaken. So I'm a naval officer and I'm in a naval battle. And a quote from Shakespeare is going to help me just in time. Is that your model? He didn't, like, he didn't like me much. I mean, <laughs> we have this medieval, literally medieval, making it up, literally medieval concept of what constitutes education. The requirements to get into Harvard and Harvard when it was first started were to read Latin and Greek. Why? Because the only things that mattered intellectually had been written in Latin and Greek, so that's why. But we still fundamentally believe that, and we've translated them into English, but we still fundamentally believe that I mean, education means being a scholar. Now, First of all, I'm not sure the world needs any scholars, but it certainly doesn't need your average kid in first grade to be a scholar. And, and, but we insist on it. So the curriculum has nothing to do with what kids want to do. And while I'm on this topic, uh, the King of Spain created a committee to re-examine their education system. And since I'm well known in Spain, they called me. And I had this really nice conversation with three or four people, and they were interested in listening to everything I'm saying, like what I'm saying now, kinds of things I'm saying now. And those are really good points. Yeah, we should do that. They said, but the, we want to have a one-sentence su summary for the king. So what would your one-sentence summary be? I said, eliminate all classrooms. And there was dead silence on the end of the phone. Because the classroom is the beginning end of the problem. If you insist on putting 30 or 50 or 1,000 kids in the same room, education is over. You only get, the only education that occurs with a teacher it really is one-on-one. -on -one. Hey, a teacher, my, I remember my daughter running up the stairs one day when she was five, and she had some question on a what. And then she, I answered it and she said, okay, I'll be back when I need you again. Now, yesterday she was back again. She's 47 now and she's had another question. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is the value of teachers, that to be there when you need them, not to be talking at you. Montaigne, the famous French philosopher, said, why are the teachers always babbling at us all the time? That's 1500s. 
nothing's changed. You know, for me, I guess when when I kind of think about there's there's two questions what I've just jumped to mind. I guess when when listening to you there, and I guess one of them is is kind of so when it comes to let's let's use a term um, let's use a term learning here. You know, my my background, if you like, and the stuff what I I think works is experience design. It, it's kind of you know learn by doing and kind of you know making someone care, not making someone care, but giving them an experience so then it actually might give them that nudge factor to actually care a little bit. But I guess, one, you know, how how do you see learning changing and, and, and what is the future of, of learning and education then in your eyes? Well, I've always said there's only two things wrong with education, how we teach and what we teach. Other than that, everything's fine. <laughs> Get rid of subjects. Okay. Why are we teaching academic subjects to kids? Because, because Harvard, literally this is true, in 1892, the president of Harvard wrote down the curriculum for the high schools, which is still in place today. That curriculum was exactly what they taught at Harvard at that time. Okay, so why don't we teach medicine to high school kids? Because it wasn't a subject at Harvard in 1892. Why don't we teach business to high school kids? Because it wasn't a subject at Harvard in 1892. Why don't we teach law? Same. Why don't we teach psychology? Same. Why don't we teach computer science? Same. So every kid is taking the same crappy so many years of history, so many years of chemistry, so many years of biology. Why do we teach biology, chemistry, and physics? You want to know why we teach, and why do we teach them in that order? I knew a Nobel Prize winner who was upset by the fact that they were taught in that order. He said physics should be first, and he couldn't get anyone to change. Do you know why it's in that order? Nope. Because it's alphabetical, that's why. We can't even think this out clearly enough to think about what's important. Why you learn to balance chemical equations? There's not a kid in the world who isn't learning to do that in high school, why? Okay. Okay. So, so is it a case of, and I'm probably going to use the wrong term here, but kind of making school much more like real life? Well, it would be a good thing. <laughs> and you know, it's always it's all Harvard's fault. Tomorrow, Harvard changed its policies on admissions. If you look, you can look it up and see what you what do you have to do to apply to Harvard, and they'll tell you you need to take chemistry, physics, algebra, all these wow. subjects. <laughs> if they would stop that, we could change the high schools, but they won't. Stop it. And also the government. Why the government thinks it knows about what should be taught in the schools is beyond me. Uh, Mark Twain, the famous American comic, once said, first God created idiots. That was just for practice. Then he created school boards. Why does the average Joe get to have a vote on what's taught to children? Why don't we actually figure out what they need to know? And also, it's not about knowing. It's about knowing how to do things. What do they need to know how to do? Driver's ed, for example, is an extracurricular. Why wouldn't that be right in the center of the curriculum? They really do need to know how to drive. All right? Why don't we teach them to do things? Because we don't. Because we didn't have that model and we have the old model, the Roman model, which was only meant for rich kids. The regular Romans went to, didn't go to school, they learned as an apprenticeship. The rich kids learned from being lectured at about philosophy, so everyone should do that. Makes no sense. So, so what's it going to take to change? Well, there's only one answer. That's why I do online education. It's going to take a Jeff Bezos or somebody, you can't say Bill Gates because Bill Gates made it worse, but someone who actually cares about education to put the money in at, that will allow us to build a zillion different curricula that kids can say, well, I like that one. or That one looks cool. I want to do that one. Or this sounds interesting. Is they're asking what they want to be when they grow up, ask them what they want to do right now. I've been interviewing people lately just because I'm working on this this particular issue right this minute. So I was interviewing I interviewed a bunch of doctors. I asked them what did they like to do when they were children. Ninety percent of them said they like to do puzzles. Now that makes sense because puzzles is a lot like diagnosis. You can see why they would want want to do that. In fact, just today I was in a doctor this morning and I said, "Did you like to do puzzles?" Yeah, I love doing puzzles. It, it's what it's. So they made a good judgment. For there's a lot of other kids who like doing puzzles who didn't even think that that might lead to being a doctor. And there's plenty of doctors who, when they got into it, realized they didn't really like the endless puzzle solving. And so what would prevent us from having a doctor curriculum for six-year-olds? Not to make them doctors, but to continue to see see if they're interested in this. And they, they want to learn more about it because we've established that they're puzzle solvers. And so give them puzzles to solve that may relate to something that could excite them and what they want to do in life. Let them choose where they want to go in their own education career. But in order to do that, we have to have made thousands of online courses because every school isn't going to suddenly be able to teach everything by no means. 
So we have to have all these things available. So for example, right now I'm working on cyber, cyber security, trying to teach people to do attack and defend both. And what we've learned about cybersecurity people is that 90% of them are on the autism spectrum. Now, I don't actually believe the autism spectrum makes any sense, which is what you saw when you read that article about ADHD, and I've been meeting autism experts who actually agree with me in two minutes when I say it doesn't make any sense. Autism is a bunch of different things. And the thing that's mostly the problem with autism is the kids who have autism are annoying. But they also happen to be very focused on things and can dive down deep into things. And if you can't do that, you can't be working in cybersecurity. So that's why they've all wound up in cybersecurity because it really fits their personality. Why can't we have every kid doing something that fits his personality? Why don't we figure out what his personality is in a conversation with him, not assign him a personality, and say, well, how would you like to try this? How would you like to try that? And give him 100 choices, 1,000 choices. It's not that expensive. It requires someone who wants to put up a billion dollars to do it. And it also requires somebody who's willing to go fight every government in the world to stop trying to control the school system. And the reason the government controls the school system is they like the method of indoctrination. They want to make people believe that America is the best country in the world, which every kid in school learns. Why that's important, I don't know, but we have to learn that. Okay, so so I guess let's have a look and let's, let's take it back a little bit. So while we're talking about children, I guess, can you remember what what is the, the, the clearest mem- memory of you as a child, the, the first time you was in trouble? And can you remember what you did to get in trouble? Well, I was in trouble for talking too much. <laughs> I can't sit still. I can't sit still even now. So <laughs> sitting still and being quiet is not my thing. I was constantly in trouble. But, but I'll tell you what my interesting memory relevance of this conversation is that I performed a little trick when I was a kid. And the trick was I'd walk up to people. I spent a lot of time in a hotel with full of older people. And I'd walk up to the people in the hotel and I'd say, so what was, what's your birthday? And they'd say, October 12th, 1895. And I'd say, oh, Tuesday. So how the hell did you know that? That's That was my trick as a kid. I figured out how the calendar worked. Calendar looked interesting to me and I learned how it worked. And I used to do that trick all the time. And one day some kid said, this kid's a genius and announced it all over the hotel. So I went home back to my mother and I said, I'm a genius. And she said, I don't want any geniuses in my family. <laughs> so at that point I stopped doing the trick. But I've since thought about what that trick was now that I'm trying to figure out personality types that relate to education. And I realized I'm still doing that trick, not about calendars. That trick is what I call a systematizing trick. I was trying to find the underlying system for how the calendar works. And I moved into how language works, how the mind works right now, how personalities work. I'm always looking for the underlying system. It's me. So I get into trouble when I don't care what you want to teach me. I want to do what I want to do. Okay. Okay, I like that. Yeah, sounds pretty cool trick as well, to be fair. And some of these questions might seem random and, and, and they are kind of there just to change context, I guess, a little bit. But if you was to give a gift to a child, what gift would you give? Well, I'd ask about what, what kind of child we had here. <laughs> you can't just give a gift to a child. You have to understand what the child what the child's interests are. So you have to talk to the parent about what the kid likes and what's, what's exciting to him and so on and so forth. Some kids want to do sports, so you give them some sport-related thing. Some kids want to do dolls, so you give them some doll-related things. It doesn't matter, as long as it relates to what a child is interested in. Okay, okay. Good answer, good answer. So, so I guess getting back in, getting a little bit more into kind of your professional career now, and, and what has been your your favorite um, negative positive? I need to come up with a better phrase to say that, but what has been the, the one mistake you've made, and actually, you know, either straight after that or you know maybe a couple of months later down the line you've gone actually that was a really positive moment in my career even though at the time it felt like maybe a negative hmm. interesting question i've made so many mistakes i can't see straight from um probably the biggest mistake i made that i continue to make is that i is is my way i treat other people um when i moved to northwestern the, the president of northwestern called me after i'd been there for about four months and he said you're not much of a politician, are you? I said, what do you mean? He said, well, you should be going around and meeting people and introducing yourself. You just kind of, you're a big famous guy with, a, with lots of money and lots of, and lots of uh, uh, people working for you and people want to know about you. You should be going around to the relevant people and saying hello and introducing yourself. I said, really? <laughs> Didn't cross my mind. He was absolutely right. He was absolutely right. No one ever taught me about that. And while we're talking about education, no one ever told me about what I personally needed to learn. 
because no one ever cared about me as a person except my parents, but no teacher ever did. So I personally needed to learn how to get along better with people. I still don't really know how to get along with people. <laughs> so, so I guess, so you know, and, and there's so many questions I've got here and I, I want to get into kind of AI with you later on down the line and stuff, but what's been, and, and you can apply this question, I guess, to either your career, your professional, your personal life, whatever, but what's been the one biggest piece of worst advice you've here given to someone? I don't know that I've ever given bad advice to people. What I haven't done, what I haven't done is, 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 is be insistent enough. So for example, a student of mine came to me and told me, this is when he was at Northwestern, he said, I'm leaving Northwestern, I'm not going to finish my PhD. I said, what? Hell not. You're a smart guy. I've known him for years. He says, my girlfriend doesn't like Chicago. I said, your girlfriend's from Chicago. Well, she doesn't like it. I said, so let her go somewhere else. We won't finish your PhD. No, I have to go with her. I said, okay, this is a problem. I never give people advice of go to a therapist, but I'm going to tell you now, go to a therapist. But he didn't follow my advice. I ran into him five years later. He said, well, he got divorced, but it didn't really matter because she killed herself already. And this was totally understandable and predictable from what she was doing. She's just making him quit his PhD program because she didn't like Chicago anymore. Could you wait a year and let him finish? He was, he'd been a six year student already. And, and, and so you know there's something fundamentally wrong with her and he didn't know that. And the problem that I have as, had as a professor, a professor is everybody's counselor, guidance counselor, right? Especially when you're a PhD level professor, you're always your graduate students are like your children. And you spend lots of time talking to them and you can't fix them. It's like you can't fix your children. You can't even get them to listen to what you're saying, <laughs> which is too bad because you can see them clearly. You don't have no stake in, it, in, in anything that's going on except to help them out. But people don't really listen to it or take advice. Yeah. Okay, okay. No, that's, that's really good. So I guess before we get into the AI and the tech segue, which I want to get into, if I could say to you, right, Roger, I'm going to give you a, a, a big a big amount of money and a big billboard right outside, I don't know, a world-famous stadium, and you can put anything you want, a message on that billboard, and millions of people will see it, what message would you put on there? Don't send your kid to school anymore. Okay, okay. <laughs> Fire world, stop sending their kids to school. The governments would have to react and do something, apart from arresting everybody and beating everybody up. We never, I've never seen a kid's school strike. They have teacher strikes. But they don't have kids' school strike. And they should go on strike because they're miserable. The only reason kids like going to school is because their friends are there and they're going to hang out and not have to stay at home all day. But making any, a little kid, much less an adult, but a little kid, sit still all day. Just imagine that. I, I was once in uh, Brazil and I was meeting with the education ministers and arranged people. And I was saying the thing, kinds of things I'm saying now. And they said, no, we have great skills in schools in Brazil. To which I went, uh-huh. And, and they had to helicopter me to, because it was in Sao Paulo where you can't get around by car. They had to helicopter me to their best favorite school they thought was the greatest. And I walked into the first grade classroom, which was getting a lecture on the Roman theater. Really? Wow. Next classroom, the kids were yelling and screaming. And I said, I want to go to that classroom. That sounds like fun, that class. <laughs> oh, well, that wasn't a class. That was break <laughs> recess so the kids want to run around and scream and you're making them learn about the roman theater when they're six years old why it's like everybody is royally insane i don't know what to say i mean speaking of royally I, when megan markle was having to become uh, a citizen they published she had to take the citizenship test so i wrote an article on this because i read the uk citizenship test I didn't know any answers to any questions, not because I'm not from the UK, because there were questions about British history that no, I wouldn't care about. And I assure you, she didn't know. So she had to memorize a lot of crap to become a British citizen that does nothing to do with being a British citizen. What were the right British citizenship test? What are your responsibilities as a citizen? What kinds of things, how do the laws work? How can you affect them? Not what King Henry VIII ate for breakfast or whatever the hell they were asking. No, I agree, I agree. And I, I think, you know, you kind of answered your own question with, you could ask a lot of British citizens now and they wouldn't be able to pass that test themselves because... Of course not. It's, of it's, course not. Yeah. No American pass the Americans. It's a test either. It's not a, it's not a slap on Britain. This is a, a general view of the, of the world that legislators have, which is, this is important. Everyone should know this. There is no such this. There's nothing. There's nothing everyone has to know. This idea that everyone must know X is one of the biggest problems we have in education and in society. You don't have to know X. You have to have some idea that when you cross the street, you might want to look for traffic. <laughs> but you, know, you don't have to know anything. 
So, so I mean, you know, I, I think we could talk about this stuff for, for ages here, Roger. But I mean, I want to kind of get into this AI and, and tech. So, you know, let's 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 start with AI. So, you know, I I will let you know right now. I am no expert in AI whatsoever. Um, but you know, let's clear that definition up first of kind of what, in your eyes, what AI is and what AI isn't. Let's start with every single thing you've read about AI is a lie. Okay. All the media has gone insane about AI. I've been through this movie before. In the mid 80s, the media went insane about AI. Investors went insane about AI. AI, 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 AI. Every time I went on a television show, I was asked, well, computer's gonna take over or I might lose my job. And I said, could you stop these stupid questions? I didn't come here to talk about this nonsense. But the media, which doesn't know much, has to do this. So Wired Magazine produced an interview between the editor of Wired Magazine and Macron of France about AI. And I tweeted two morons talking about a subject neither understands. And the editor of Wired wrote to me, he was mad. He says, well, I'm just a journalist. I don't, I'm not expected to understand it. I said, well, he's just a politician. Why does he expect to understand it? Why are you discussing a subject neither of you understands? And so we shouldn't be talking about AI. I'm happy to talk about it a little bit, but honestly, it's been blown out of all proportion. It's not true. Everything you're reading is a lie. Okay. Okay. So, so again, yeah. I mean, this this whole, you know, if you just look at it from kind of the the news and stuff like that, there's a lot of kind of fear mongering going on. And I was reading, I read an article, and I, I don't know how credible this article was. Um, and we're talking about actually, you know, if you're going to see any roles disappearing, it's going to be in kind of the admin based roles, the simple action based focus roles of, you know, a bit like it's just it's just a smart, you know, if this and that kind of. Who um, cares? Are you, are you worried about the horse and buggy drivers losing their jobs because cars appeared? No, not really. Not Why does this matter? Are you worried about the factory workers learning their robot, losing the awful robotic jobs because some robot can do it for them? I mean, the reality is that jobs have been disappearing for as long as there have been jobs based upon what, new ways of doing things. We cope because we have new things and they have to do things with that. This is not a, a, a worth worrying about. Uh, and since a journalist can't think his way out of a paper bag, quite typically, they're not going to be sitting there saying, asking reasonable questions about AI. So their questions are all going to be fear questions. I can remember 1984 being on the Today Show, which is a big morning television show. And, and I was properly prepped for some very good questions about AI. And the first question I was asked is, is AI going to kill us all? Oh, for God's sakes, stop it. So, yeah, I mean... You know, I guess I seen the video. I think was it on CNN what you had recently, a couple of months right. ago. I think that that was a great video, and I'll definitely put that video in the show notes as well because I just think that's just worth a watch as many times as you want. Enjoy that. I know well, I definitely the summary, did. The summary of that of that interview is I kept trying to get her to understand that if you change the question to a computer is doing this instead of AI is doing this, it wouldn't seem so magical. So these are computer programs. Is there a, somebody wrote a computer program that does something interesting? Okay, is it interesting? Tell me what it is. I'll be happy to, to see if it's interesting and see if it's better than what was there before. We have to call it AI. It's not AI. AI is something else. I happen to think AI is a very important subject, but we now have stopped all work on AI because now we have to do dumb AI for a while until we discover it doesn't work. And then 10 years from now, we'll be hearing how AI failed. So I guess, I guess you know, you said about bad dumb AI, but what, what, to you, you know, is is smart AI kind of how do you see that? You know, forget about let's just say we, we get over this next 10, 15 years of people calling smart computing AI. What, what, where do you see the biggest leap for AI is for, for kind of you, your personal view on it? Well, my personal view on you've been hearing, I just haven't used the word AI. Uh, my view of AI is a way to investigate how the human mind works. That's why I found it interesting because if I want to have a computer have a conversation with me like we're having now. I want to know how you do that or how I do it. How do I, how do I come up with things to say back? How do I come understand what you said? My, I was always very fascinated by language. So how do I understand a sentence? Well, no one's working on that problem. They've instead created chatbots, i.e. a program that doesn't even pretend to understand you, but will say something back to you, and you have to have a conversation with someone who doesn't understand a word you're saying, which is what you see now with chatbots. Yeah, that's important. They've been around for 40 years. It's nothing new. They're not of any use. If you can make of some some use of them, okay. But the real question is, how does somebody understand what I'm saying right now and come back with something to say back to me? I wrote a book called Tell Me a Story a long time ago. It said, as far as I can tell, we all we do when we talk is story exchange. I have a story I want to tell, something I know, something that's happened, some, and I 
you prompt me with the right question and it crosses my mind, this is a good time to tell that story. And that's in effect what I'm doing now. There's nothing, I haven't said anything I haven't said before. So all these things that, that are in my mind or things I think about things can get prompted by somebody saying something. But it's not about the words. And when I got into uh, a field I call natural language processing, when I just how to get computers to understand English, um, the field was dominated by linguists. And all they knew about was syntax. And I said, uh, you know, people actually understand meanings. They don't just parse sentences according to their grammatical properties. This was seen very radical. The linguists hated me. In fact, I had to leave linguistics because I kept saying these weird things. So I went into AI. <laughs> but, you know, so in AI, you can say, I wonder how a human being understands that. And it's a legitimate question. That doesn't mean we know the answer. So we have to try and figure out what a human is doing when you say, John hit Mary, what's he understanding? Uh, John hit Mary is a simplistic sentence, but it can mean a thousand things. It depends on who John and Mary are, for example. You, you can say, oh my God, John's a beast, except if John is two years old and Mary's his mother, then John's just a, an undisciplined child. So you have to know something about who these people are and what it means and, and what hitting someone means. And, and it also means different things based on who you're talking about. If John hits Mary and John is a, an adult and Mary's his wife, then that means something very different than if John and Mary are both six-year-olds. Yeah. So you have to understand something about what, what, what the implications are about hitting somebody are. And so there's a lot to language. There's nothing to do with language or understanding how the world works. That's what I work on. Okay. Okay. That's that's really helpful. And I guess, yeah, kind of all the, all the nuances you could kind of, there's so, so many. I guess, I, I guess the thing I was talking about with chatbots was it was really interesting. I, I built a very basic one at, and it's a, it was a Facebook Messenger and it was, I didn't send it to be something else. And actually, when I sat down, I was like, all this is is branch. It's just branch questioning. If you right. say this, that. If you go this way, that way. There's nothing smart whatsoever about it's not it. Understanding you, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing intelligent about it whatsoever. Yeah. It's not understanding you. And so some guy built a, a, a chat bot to be a T. It replaced the TA in a course. And um, people didn't know it wasn't the TA. They thought it was the, they thought it was the TA, which tells you something about the TA. <laughs> <laughs> the TA should be having a conversation with you, not being responding to the key words you've just said. Okay, so so okay, so I guess moving away from from kind of AI now, and and, and maybe just just te um, technology in general. Do you think technology simplifies life or makes it more complicated? Well, I don't think it's, if it makes it more complicated. It's stupid. I mean, the whole premise of technology is let's consider the car is to do what we want to do better. So now I don't have to get a horse and, 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 and drive home. <laughs> I can get in a car and drive home and I'll get there faster. It's, it's, there's nothing about technology. It's about, is there something you could build for me that would make my life better? The problem with better is that better gets confusing. So why are we considering discussing cars? Has, have cars made life better? Right now I'm in the middle of Manhattan. You should be able to see if you can. Yeah, it's a beautiful view. See in camera, but I'm in the middle of Manhattan, where there's a billion cars and a billion people on the streets. There have always been a billion people on the streets as long as there's been New York. But the cars have made New York impossible. So, in fact, my son, who's a transportation expert, said, well, I'm, we're trying to work on banning cars from New York, which I think is a good idea. Now, that doesn't mean cars are evil. That means we have a society which was not built for cars. Manhattan was built long before there were cars. And so they designed it and laid out the streets not because they knew their cars were coming. And you know, I mean, I, I'm living above above a street called Broadway, which you probably heard of. Yep. And Broadway was the main street of New York in 1650. <laughs> it was, it's a it's an old Indian trail, and it goes at an angular way through Manhattan. Would you build a city with that? No, it screws up every intersection. Every every main intersection is screwed up because there's a street coming across at an angle. But we live in a world which isn't entirely new. So Manhattan's an old place. But when they build new cities, they don't sit there and design them as if everybody's driving a horse and buggy. You gotta think about the fact what the car does. I actually think the car by and large does not help people be happier. And so if you ask me about whether I think cars were good technology, I'd be hesitant to say yes, except I wouldn't give up my car ever. So <laughs> Okay. So so when it comes to and these these are kind of really a bit more deeper questions, so buckle up, Roger, we're going in. Um I guess when it comes to humans would you say humans are better at 
at creation or destruction? <laughs> I don't think humans are particularly good at creation at all. It's a rare moment when you see something new being created by your, your average human. Uh, and also, it's very hard. They're good at preventing creation. Because when you're an academic and you're trying to invent something new, there's always 100 people telling you why you can't do it. It's already been done. It won't work. Uh, that's all I ever hear. You talk about a new idea. <clears throat> I can't tell you how many people want to tell you what not to do. But I used to I had an issue in my graduate seminars. I had a rule. When somebody said something, you were not allowed to say why he was wrong or why it wouldn't work. <laughs> we're so busy doing that. School teaches us to do that, by the way, that we have to get over it and understand that all ideas are interesting and should be played with. Okay, so yeah, I, I guess you know someone like Amy Bavalius is a great term of, of, of remixing. I think we've got so good at just kind of remixing and making little iterations of something rather than going, let's no new idea is actually really new anymore. And it's just a remastering of something what came, you know, much, much earlier. Pretty much. That's pretty much true. I mean, I'm a food freak. I love all kinds of food. There's no such thing as new food. Right? <laughs> a chef may have done something a little different than you've ever seen before. But for the most part, we've all been eating for a long time. And, and, and we've been cooking for a long time. And I'm always up for somebody inventing something new. But they can't have anything that new because... It's, there's only so many choices in what you can do. Everyday life is kind of prescribed by facts that we can't control, we can't do anything about. So I don't think people are sitting around being creative. I think that you know maybe an artist is making a new piece of art, but in terms of deep creativity, changing the way we look at the world, changing the way we behave, they can't do it. And when they do try to do it, take your, your Brexit thing going on in England. When they do do it and they join up the EU, they don't even have any idea of the controversy it's about to start and the chaos that's going to happen. So, you know, you get in something and you can't get out of it. And, and all I'm saying is that the world is just, it's very difficult to do, some, do new things. Mm. Okay. Okay. I think I think we see that a lot in, in business as well. Like, I know it's on a very much ma- like micro level, but, you know, the business want these changes and they want this and they want that. But actually, they end up being the whole bottleneck behind the actual change what we're asking for. Which what, businesses want changes, really? It's news to me. What changes do they want? <laughs> okay, so let's take let's take as an example Uber. This great invention as a stock is going to be worth twenty billion dollars. They've invented a new way to exploit drivers. Very good, very clever. Mm. It's it's very true. It's very true. It's um it's interesting, you know. Is it Lyft? You have Uber, and you have Lyft. I think over in the states as well. I don't think we have that over over here in the UK. Um. But again, it's kind of, you know, Lyft is, if, if, I'm, if I'm understanding Lyft, it's just literally a remix of Uber, right? It's it's no different, it's no better. It's just as a, it's just a, another carbon copy with a different name. Is that right to say? Or? Yeah, that's right to say. I mean, that's what, that's what in, in so-called invention is. We don't have any miracle inventions occurring very often. For the most part, everything is a rehash or a remake of something that was already there. We don't really, we, re, we reject invention. We, as human beings, don't want new things. They want things to be the way they were. You know, I mean, how do you, you know, as you get on an age, you discover that you've turned into the very thing that you thought was ridiculous. All these old people saying, oh, I mean, things were better in my day. And now I look at it and I say, now I know why they were saying that, because the world changes in uninteresting ways. So now everybody's doing X when they used to do Y. It's not that X is better or worse than Y. It's that these are interesting changes. Can we try doing some interesting changes? Why does school look exactly like it looked in 1892? I mean, no one wants to change that. When I say we need to change every every subject, you ever think anybody's ever said, you're right, Roger? No one has ever said that to me. They are an interesting point of view, but no one does anything about it. And no one's going to do anything about it. No matter how miserable their child is in school, they won't do a thing to change school. For one thing, it's very hard. So, so do you think this is kind of, you know, do you think this is a, there's a limit to kind of human creativity then? No, I think there's a limit to our tolerance for change. I don't think we like change. We want things to be the way they were. And we were comfortable the way they were. We lived with the way they were for all our lives. And suddenly you're telling me you're not supposed to wear black shoes. You're supposed to wear brown shoes. And I find this extremely offensive. (laughs) Well, I don't care. But I noticed that people are now wearing brown shoes instead of black shoes. It doesn't matter to me. But there's an internal part of me like everybody else who thinks, why do we need to do that change? Why was that an important change? I don't know. Okay, okay. So so if we was 
Say, say our whole species was to die and you had to leave a paragraph behind to jumpstart the next species, what would you write? Assuming that they can read, that is. I don't think you can write anything because, for one thing, I hope they can't read. Reading is actually a bad thing. I'm the only one who's ever going to say that. (laughs) (laughs) It's like there are many things, religious things you can't touch, one of which is reading. (laughs) Reading is the most important thing. Everyone has to read. That's not true. In fact, this very podcast is an example of how reading is going away. Yep. People walking around the streets with their ears plugged up with stuff. They're not reading unless they're looking at their phone, which isn't exactly reading. <laughs> so, you know, what we have to do is understand that, that certain things are overvalued in relation to how much value they really do have. And so you're never going to hear anyone say, because they get criticized, what I just said. Reading is passe. Really? Oh, my God. No. And I'm, I've written 31 books. I'm writing another one now. I must really not believe that. No, I just how I express myself. And I'm old, and there's a new way to express yourself. Podcasts is certainly a new way to express yourself. And I think ultimately, um, the idea that reading is a good idea is just so obviously wrong. In other words, I'll give you, I think the worst thing in education is lectures. And I was once saying this to a professor who got very mad at me. Did I give great lectures? I said, okay, here's a test. You walk into your classroom, and there's only one student. Do you give the lecture? He looks at me and he says, well, no, I guess not, but he'd miss a great lecture. <laughs> Why would he guess not? Because you can't lecture at a person. You'd have to talk to him. And the, and, and the conversation would, would direct, be directed by both people to go in directions that were interesting to both people. Well, that's what's wrong with reading. Socrates said this. I'm not the first person to have noticed it. Socrates said the problem with, with books is you can't change them. They keep saying the same stuff no matter who you are. Right. It's a, books are actually a pretty much a terrible idea. And the reason I started talking about lecturing is what does the word lecture actually mean in Latin? Most people don't really know what it means. It means to read. And what was going on was a lecturer is someone who's reading the book at you because you can't read. And in the 1500s, the monks could read. The average person couldn't, so they'd read at them. That's great. That evolved into the modern lecture system. We have to get over this idea that communication is not two-way. It's two-way. And the problem with what we're doing right now, the podcast is a two-way between you and me, but the people who are listening to it aren't part of the conversation, and they should be. Yep, yep. So I guess, okay, so we, we know you, you know your books, and I'm, and I'm going to put a link into them as well, I guess. But so you, this next book, what you're writing, I mean, obviously, I'm assuming you can't talk about it too much, but have you, when, when you're doing your writing, you're thinking about your writing, and you're thinking about the experience of the, the user who's going to read it or stuff, have you, have you sat back and thought, actually, Maybe I could do this a different way. Maybe it isn't. Maybe it turns into an audio book. Maybe it's actually just, you know, a, a different approach to that. Or have you kind of just gone, I'm, I'm kind of used to this now. This is my flow and actually it's a better way for me to get my ideas down. Well, I, I did do that. I, 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 two, three years ago, I decided to do an audio book. And so I interviewed people and I talked and I, I did a whole range of things. But I actually didn't know how to publish it. I mean, this is as if there's a world out there publishing audio books. And, and so it's all very well and good this new technology and maybe it'll lead somebody's interesting, but it's not obvious for a writer how he can get his stuff out there that way. Whereas books are obviously dying because I, the last book I was rejected by, by, by the book editors. And the reason was the answer to everything is money. The reason was they weren't sure it was going to make them enough money and they're having trouble selling books now. So they need to have a book that was about why Donald Trump sucks to make money, not a book about why knowledge is, is not necessarily needed, which is too weird. So, so they're not looking for um, books like that. That's why every other book is about Donald Trump. <laughs> so, so, so I guess I, I'm kind of just just listening to what you're saying there, and I'm picturing kind of the Donald Trump sucks thing, and and looking at kind of this kind of clickbait what you see on on social media and stuff. And I guess the, you know your book will be of absolute worth to your readers. I'm sure of that. But I guess. It, the thing what frustrates me when 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 I think about this and you look at this Donald Trump, you know, sucks book. I've not I've not read it at all, so I can't really comment too much on it. Yeah, well, yeah, but I mean, like when we look at say social media as as a whole and you know clicking going to clickbait and stuff like that. Do you think this this social media what we see now this Twitter, Instagram, blah blah blah. Do you think that's been like more of a? Is it, do you think it's had a an overall net positive or a net negative for our society? 
Well, it lets people communicate with each other more easily. So, for example, you mentioned that you, you I was recommended to you by Nick Shackleton-Jones, and Nick Shackleton-Jones and I only communicate by Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> he likes Twitter, and so occasionally I write back something he said, respond to something he said, or vice versa. Um, I don't find that a good thing. I mean, I'm, I'm living in, at this moment in a high-rise apartment in Manhattan. I'm, I live on the 43rd floor, so I have to ride the elevator a lot. I've never seen anyone on the elevator who isn't looking at their phone on the elevator. Now, as far as I can tell, the reason for that is they're trying not to have to say hello. Hmm. New York always had a rule, which was you said hello to your neighbors in the neighborhood in, in the elevator and you talk to them. No one does that anymore. It's a way of avoiding communication. So they're sitting there typing messages to people, but they're not actually talking to anybody. And you can walk in a restaurant and see six people at a table. Every one of them is on their phone at the same time. So in this particular case, I think technology is ruining the human experience, which is getting to know another person, getting to like another person, having them care about you and vice versa. That's what the human experience is about. And it's becoming less and less true as a result of the new technologies. Yeah, I, I did a, a, I put a tweet out a couple of months ago and I was talking to, I, I don't really venture into London too much. I'm based in Manchester North. And so the tube is like this alien thing to me. And I remember mm. sitting on there, there's this common perception that people up north are way nicer than the people down south. Just They're just more nicer. And whether that's true or not is another thing. But actually, when I got on the tube, I thought, this is a great opportunity to to communicate and to have a chat with a complete stranger and know by the time you get off, you've had a conversation with a stranger. You might never meet them again, but there's been some great exchange one way or another. And I did I did get to thinking, when when has that kind of changed from being this, this moment of opportunity to this moment of avoidance? Well, for one thing, the, the tube is not a good place to meet new people. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I actually had experience that's relevant to that this morning. I was walking to a doctor's office, which is about a mile from here. And I, it's, it's kind of cold this morning, and I was wearing a kind of big, funny hat. Not, not a cowboy hat, but it looks a little bit like that. And some guy walked up to me and said, you look like a professor. And you look like you must have written lots of books on science, which was really weird. But weirder was who this guy was. He was one of the street bums. Wow. And his next sentence was, do you have any money? And I said, no. He said, that's okay. I just wanted to talk to you. I think you're cool. And I have to tell you that his fact that he picked out that I look like a professor and that I, I, I like to write books was very impressive. I, I would have been happy to talk to him more, except that he was a bum. <laughs> But people don't do that on the street anymore. In New York, they did. They used to talk to people on the streets. And, 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 and now they don't. For one thing, they're absorbed in their phones. For another thing, they're frightened of strangers and everybody looks different than them. And so I think we've created a society where people aren't communicating very much anymore, which is really sad. And I'm not sure the technology isn't doing anything but making it worse because they're looking at their phones so they can continue to chat with the same people they've been chatting with their whole lives and never meeting anyone new. Yeah, there's um there's a great book called Homecoming, and it talks about a guy who comes back from the war and stuff like that, and it it kind of uses an example of um they did a case study and I think it was World War I think it was First World War Second World War, and they're saying kind of war has some real great benefits to society and community, and they use this example of actually they studied people who was going through I think they had like you know psychotic breakdowns or whatever else, and actually at the time of war that dipped. And they said the reason behind that was because there was this lack of, communi- of community and actually what a war tends to do is bring people back together, which I think is, is true to a point. You know, it does. It brings it brings people to kind of look out for our neighbour and, and stuff like that. But I found it a really a really interesting book to say kind of the, the unnoticeable changes, i.e. The, the people who was in wards, you know, psychotic wards and stuff like that, kind of that took a big dip and actually the numbers went down based on it. So... I, I think there's this need for for more. I think we, you know, as humans, we need that communication. We need that. We need that collaboration, one way or another, and, and being able to kind of express ourselves one way or another. But yeah, I'm just being my, my, mindful of your time here, Roger. So I guess three quick questions then. One, what are your top three? Um, who are the top three people everybody should be following right now? Be it on Twitter, LinkedIn, wherever. Who who are the three people you would recommend to follow? That's not a question I can answer. Okay, <laughs> okay, and I guess maybe maybe it's it's one more. If you was to give, if you was to give 
free piece of advice to people now who are who are new in the career maybe it's in learning maybe it's yeah maybe let's use it in the corporate context of learning what free piece of advice would you give them to someone new in their career or maybe even not new maybe just needs a refresh my advice is very simple but it's hard to follow my advice is be yourself the problem is on average people don't know who they are so they don't know what it means to be yourself in other words if instead of trying to drug a kid who's autistic or has ADHD, there's other made up nonsense. Um, if instead of that, we said, okay, well, what is that personality feature useful for? And so I was saying, so in, you're overly focused, which is a nasty way of saying it, but you're so focused, you could be a cyber attacker. Okay, that's a good thing. And this is true about nearly anything. You said to me earlier, you're dyslexic. Okay, so probably your whole life, people are trying to make you read. Well. Don't read. It's okay. You can get by a whole happy life without reading. Millions of humans did it before you. So the issue is not to tell somebody that they have to read, but to tell them that um, the real issue is to figure out who you really are, what you really like, what you really want to do, what kind of people you want to hang out with, and figure out how to do that. Don't listen to someone tell you you must go to college, another one of these nonsense things we say to kids. 18 years old, you don't mustn't do anything, but going to college is probably the worst thing you could possibly do because you're not ready for it. You don't know that you want to be a scholar, and which is what college is about, and you have no idea that you have to do that to get a job, and we're making it up. But we listen to it. I mean, I, I remember when I was in college as a freshman, they asked all the kids, why are you here? And I said, my mother made me come here, which was the truth. Um, I don't, uh, I never made that decision to go to college. And when I went to graduate school, I didn't make that decision either. Is either that or get drafted and fight in Vietnam? Well, I knew which one worked better to me. So to my mind, understanding who you are is one of the hardest things you can do. And figuring out what it means to be yourself and what somebody like you is best doing is important to know. And apropos what you were saying earlier, which is relevant here, I once read an interesting book called The Female Brain, written by a female neuro neuroscientist, in which he said, women are wanting to be in constant communication with each other. That's why you see women texting all the time, back and forth. She said, that's because, and it's very obvious when you think about it, when the men went out to hunt in the caveman days and the women were left by themselves, they better be having each other's backs or they were in trouble. So the men didn't have to be talking about hunting, they could just go hunt. But the women need to be talking, I'm here, you're here, you're here, I'm here, good, I'm here, we're all together, I'm okay, you're okay, is part of what it was like to be so, survive in the caveman age. And to some extent, we still need that. We still need to feel like people are there for us. I'm here for you. It all works out. And that's something that I think a lot of people don't understand. So you have a lot of lonely people in the world. Okay. So, so I guess, you know, do you think, and, and, and you know, knowing you, Roger, and, and knowing your, your Twitter and, and having this conversation, for me, I think you, you kind of, I like, and I, I actually really appreciate that you don't put filters on things. Someone who's new or someone who's in the corporate environment, would you recommend putting filters on on what they're saying, or just kind of yeah, getting to the point and being being honest to yourself? Well, people are afraid. That's the problem. We are, and sometimes they're legitimately afraid. You know, if you say when you really think about something, you first of all, a lot of people are going to dislike you for it. But second off, if you're in a company, you might get fired for saying that. So it's not a. I mean, for example, it was a thing I just read about something happened in, in UK a few minutes ago, which is they fired some BBC reporter for hinting that the new baby looked like a chimp. Yeah, yeah, I heard about this. I was thinking, why is that a bad thing to say? And then they said, oh, because his mother is half black. How do you know that's what he was thinking? <laughs> Maybe he thought it looked like a chimp. I don't know. Is it, we we go through this nonsense and you have to fire this guy. So of course he's afraid to say what he thinks. And so what happens is we put ourselves in a situation where people are in constant fear of losing what they have because they violated some norm. I have the exact opposite view, which is violate every damn norm. I mean, with the exception of shooting people or robbing them, just, you know, <laughs> your mouth isn't going to kill anybody. Say what you feel like saying. Let's have some honest conversations. What would be wrong with that? Okay, perfect. So I guess going full circle at the start, um, I asked you what you wanted to be when you grew up. And as you know, Roger, we, we never kind of really ever grow up. It's just a constant journey. If I was to ask you this question now, Roger, what do you want to be when you grow up? What would you want to be now? I want to be the person who overthrew the school system. Yes. 
<laughs> yes, brilliant. Right, Roger, well, it's been an absolute pleasure. Where can people find out a little bit more about what you're up to and kind of, you know, what you're working on? Where can we go? Well, I have a website. You can find stuff through that, rogershank.com. And uh, I'm easy enough to find out about Just Google me, I show up. Perfect. Well, I'll put all the links in the show notes. Um, so, yeah, Roger, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. Okay, nice talking to you. Thanks. Bye-bye.